You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. There it is there, here it is here. That's what the hub, it's literally above us. Um, and in our institute, uh, we celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. We promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And obviously uh, uh, this lecture series is all about that. Uh, and then the last thing we do is uh, public humanities. We really uh, believe passionately in the importance of taking the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And this lecture series, uh, What Does It Mean to Be Human in the 21st Century, is just a great example of that. And I'm gonna uh, have Claire say a few words about the series and introduce our speakers, but I just have a couple of housekeeping things that I'd like you, uh, please, to put your phones to silent. Um, uh, uh, because it's so annoying when they go off, as we, as we all know. Um, but we'd love you to tweet. So uh, please use the hashtag uh, HubMatters and uh, the handle uh, at TLR, TLR Hub up here. So let's get a Twitter storm going if we can. Um, and uh, I, I'll pop it up again at the end uh, just to say a few thank yous. But now I'd like to hand the podium over to our um, partner in this uh, uh, amazing lecture series. Sadly, tonight is the last lecture and invite Claire Carroll, who is the director of the Human Insights at Lab uh, Attic Center down at the dock to uh, uh, say a few words about the series and to introduce our amazing speakers this evening. Claire. Thank you very much, Jane, um, and good evening. It's great to be here. Thank you for, for everyone for coming out this evening. Uh, for those of you joining us here for the first time, what does it mean to be human in the 21st century is a cross-disciplinary research, uh, sorry, lecture series launched uh, back in December 2018 um, as a collaboration between Accenture's Human Insights Lab and, as Jane said, the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Through the series, um, it's been fascinating. We've reflected on how we understand ourselves, the world, and our place within it, bringing together quite different voices um, from academia and beyond, from science uh, to the creative arts, to discuss the human experience of today and its future in the face of massive accelerated change uh, brought about predominantly by um, artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. And for our last and final talk of the series, which um, we regret but are enormously excited about, we are thrilled to end on this very inspiring note and are looking forward to hearing Mark and Simon's story, which is gonna be followed by um, a fascinating uh, conversation with uh, the Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience here at Trinity College, uh, Ian Robertson. So, from injury to inspiration, uh, Simon George and Mark Pollock have a very powerful story to tell. As Mark himself says, spinal injury strikes at the very heart of what it means to be human. And tonight we are honored to hear a love letter to realism in a time of grief. After becoming blind in 1998, Mark became an adventure athlete, competing in ultra endurance races across deserts, sorry, deserts, mountains, and the polar ice caps, <laughs> sorry Mark, <laughs> including, <laughs> including being the very first blind person to race to the South Pole. In 2010, 
a fall from a second story window left him paralyzed. Exploring the intersection where humans and technology collide, he is now on a personal mission to cure paralysis in our lifetime. Mark is the subject of the acclaimed documentaries Blind Man Walking and Unbreakable, the Mark Pollock story, and is co-founder of the global running series called Run in the Dark. Simon George is a human rights lawyer and activist and a consultant commercial litigator. As a human rights lawyer, Simon represents women who are experiencing abuse and is presently researching why those in our systems do not adequately serve justice. She is a director on the board of the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. And finally, Ian Robertson is Emeritus Professor of Psychology here at Trinity College and co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute. He's a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist with a unique ability to apply his research to the pressures of everyday life. Many of you have probably read his books, but some of his re recent books include Mind Sculpture, The Mind's Eye, The Winner Effect, and Stress Test. So we are teed up for a very exciting um, uh, conversation ahead and presentation. So um, please join me in welcoming Mark Pollock and Simon George. I met Mark when he was just blind. I had returned home to live in Dublin at the end of the odyssey that was my 20s. Educating my interest in human rights and feminism at university, roaming around the world like my nomad grandmother, and during a two-year stint working in Madrid, dancing many, many nights till morning in salsa clubs. When I met Mark, he asked me to teach him to dance, and I did. They were wonderful times, long nights talking, laughing, becoming friends, and eventually falling for each other. Mark had lost his sight at the age of 22, and the man that I met six years later was rebuilding his identity, the cornerstone of which was this incredible spirit that had taken him to the Gobi Desert, where he ran six marathons in seven days, and to marathons at the North Pole and from Everest Base Camp. When I asked him what had led to this high-octane life, he quoted Nietzsche, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. He'd come across this quote in a really beautiful book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a psychologist and a neurologist who survived years in a Nazi concentration camp, and he used this Nietzsche quote to explain to us when we can no longer change our circumstances, we are challenged to change ourselves. Thankfully, I did rebuild my identity. The why for me was about competing again because pursuing success and risking failure was simply how I felt normal. And I completed the rebuild on the 10th anniversary of losing my sight. That year, I competed in a 43-day expedition race in the coldest, most remote, most challenging place on Earth. It was the first race to the South Pole since Shackleton, Scott, and Amundsen set foot in Antarctica 100 years before. And putting the demons of blindness behind me with every step towards the pole, it offered me a, a long-lasting sense of contentment. 
as it turned out, I would need that in reserve. Because one year after my return, in arguably the safest place in the world at a friend's house, I fell from a second story window onto the concrete below. And I don't know how it happened. I suspect I got up to go to the bathroom. And as a blind person, I used to run my hand along the wall to, to find my way. That night, my hand found an open space where the closed window should have been, and I cartwheeled out. My friends who found me thought I was dead. The doctors in intensive care suspected I was going to die. And when I realized what had happened, I wondered whether dying might have been the best outcome. I'd fractured my skull. I had three bleeds in my brain, a suspected torn aorta, and a spine broken in two places, no feeling or movement from my waist down. And as I lay in intensive care, confronting the prospect of being blind and paralyzed, I was trying to make sense of it all. And flat on my back, I reached for my phone and high on morphine, I started to write a blog called Optimist Realist or something else. It drew on the experiences of a, an Admiral Stockdale who was a POW at the height of the Vietnam War, incarcerated, tortured for over eight years. He didn't know if or when he might get out. And his circumstances were bleak, but he survived. And he explained that the ones who didn't survive were the optimists. The optimists said, well, we'll be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then it would be Christmas again. It was the optimists who became disappointed, demoralized, and ultimately died in their cells. Admiral Stockdale was a realist. He had been inspired by the Stoic philosophers, and he managed to confront the brutal facts of his circumstances while maintaining a faith that he would prevail in the end. And as I wrote the blog, lying there in intensive care, I was trying to apply his thinking as a realist to my increasingly bleak circumstances. And after writing the blog in the many months of kidney and heart infections at the very edge of survival, Simon and I were challenged to ask ourselves, how do we resolve the tension between acceptance and hope? And it's that that we're exploring with you, one, two, now. I arrived into the brightly lit intensive care ward where Mark was lying naked beneath a sheet attached to machines that were monitoring if he would live. I said, I'm here, Mark, and he cried tears he seemed to have saved just for me. I wanted to gather him in my arms, but I wasn't allowed to move him, and so I kissed him the way you kiss newborn babies, completely terrified of their fragility. Later that afternoon, when the bad news had been laid out for us, Mark called me to his bed and said, come here, you need to get yourself as far away from this as possible. As I tried to process in my head, what he was saying, I thought, what is wrong with you? We can't do this now. And so I asked him, are you breaking up with me? And he said, look, you signed up for the blindness, but not for this. 
And I answered, we don't know what this is, but what I certainly know is what I can't handle right now is a breakup while somebody I love is in intensive care. So I called on my legal negotiation skills and suggested we cut a deal. I said, I will stay with you as long as you need me, as long as your back needs me. And when you no longer need me, then we can talk about our relationship, like a contract with the ability to renew in six months. <laughs> he agreed, and I stayed. In fact, I refused to go home even to pack a bag. I slept by his bed, and when he could eat, I made all of his meals. I helped the doctors make all of the complicated decisions about his care. I climbed right into that raging river over rapids that was sweeping Mark along. And at the first bend in that river, Mark's surgeon told us what movement and feeling he doesn't recover in the first 12 weeks, he's unlikely to recover at all. And as I sat by his bed and those 12 weeks ticked down, I began to research why this is, why there is no recovery, why there's no therapy, why there's no hope. And the internet became this portal to a magical other world. I emailed scientists directly and they broke through their paywalls and sent me their science journal and medical journal articles. I read everything I could find about how actor, actor Christopher Reeve, the man most of us will always know as Superman, had dealt with a fall from a horse that had left him paralyzed from the neck down and ventilated. Christopher had recovered some movement and feeling two whole years after his accident. He had broken this 12-week spinal shock spell. He dreamed of a world of empty wheelchairs, and Christopher and the scientists he worked with fueled us with hope. And in hospital, we all discovered that spinal cord injury strikes at the very heart of what it means to be human turned me from my upright running, jumping form into a seated compromise of myself. And it's not just the lack of feeling and movement. Paralysis also interferes with the body's internal systems that are designed to keep us alive. Nerve pain, uncontrollable spasms, and multiple infections are common. These are some of the things that exhaust even the most determined of the 60 million people who suffer from some kind of paralysis all around the world. And what we found strange was that up to this point in history, it had proven to be impossible to find any kind of a cure. Yet history is filled with accounts of the impossible made possible through human endeavor. The kind of human endeavor that took those explorers to the South Pole at the start of the last century. And the kind of human endeavor that will take a new wave of adventurers to Mars in the early part of this century. And inspired by those stories of exploration, we started asking ourselves, well, why can't that same human endeavor cure paralysis in our lifetime? Well, we really believe that it can. My research taught us that we needed to remind Mark's damaged and dormant spinal cord of its upright, running, jumping form to work with the body's innate neuroplasticity and we found robotics engineers in San Francisco who built a robotic exoskeleton that would allow Mark to stand and walk in the lab that we began to build right here in Trinity College, Dublin. Mark became the first person in the world to personally own a device, and because of that, he and the robot 
have since walked further than anybody else on Earth, over 1.5 million steps and counting. <laughs> and while that was a great achievement, it wasn't enough. The robot was doing all of the work and we need to needed to figure out how to plug Mark in. So we found this true visionary in UCLA, a really beautiful man called Dr. Reggie Edgerton. He and his team's life's work had produced a very recent breakthrough. Electrical stimulation of the spinal cord, we believe, is the first meaningful therapy ever for paralyzed people. And during some early testing in UCLA, lying flat on his back, 12 weeks, six months, and three whole years after that fall left him paralyzed, the scientists pushed electricity into Mark's spinal cord, and Mark pulled his knee to his chest. It's wonderful that while uh, you're going through the most difficult and exciting part of your life, the documentary maker also asks you to bring a camera and film everything, and then complains when it's slightly blurry due to the excitement, <laughs> due to the excitement of, uh, of Mark moving his leg. It was a really incredible moment. And so we knew we needed to put these people together. The San Francisco-based robotics engineers knew about Reggie and UCLA's work, and they knew about the robot, but as so often happens when scientists are really focused on the bench and trying to break this ground, they hadn't quite yet got together. And that seemed to be our job now. And so we created our first collaboration. And back in 2014, Simon and my robotic legs and my paralyzed legs moved into the lab at UCLA for three months. Every morning, Reggie and his team put electrodes onto the skin of my lower back. And they pushed electricity into my spinal cord to excite the damaged nervous system while I stood in my exo. And for the first time since I was paralyzed, I could feel my legs beneath me, not like I used to, but upright in the robot with the stimulator turned on. They felt substantial. I could feel the meat of my muscles around the bones in my legs. And as I walked, I could voluntarily move my legs because of the stimulator. As I did more with my legs, the robot intelligently did less in real time. And my heart rate started to hit a normal training zone of 140 beats to 160 beats a minute. And the muscles, which had almost entirely disappeared, started to rebuild themselves. And Simon started to, de to describe it like the moment when Iron Man plugged the mini arc reactor into his chest. <laughs> And he in the suit became something uh, completely different. Since then, through our relationship with Exobionics, we've been able to put, we've got my device here in Trinity, we've put another one into Houston, in Texas, we've got another one out in, in DCU now, creating collaborations across disciplines. 
through our connections in the World Economic Forum, we were able to raise $5 million with another $15 million imminently about to arrive, hopefully in the next week, for the electrical stimulation company. And more recently, we're starting to use uh, brain-machine interface combined with direct muscle stimulation. I have often said, and I also happen to mean it, that if you forget about the paralysis, the last few years have been, without doubt, the most exciting period of our lives. Um, but we can't take the paralysis out of it. Not yet. Not yet, anyway. And that's why everything we do is about bringing people together to solve complex problems. It just happens to be paralysis and domestic violence for us. You must come out for dinner with us sometime. <laughs> um, but if you remember, the point of this story is around the blog. I told you about the blog that posed the question, Optimist Realist or something else, how to respond and resolve the tension between this seeming the obvious choice between acceptance and hope. And we've come to understand what Stockdale was talking about. Really, the optimists rely on hope alone. And if you do that, you run the risk of being disappointed and demoralized if the best case scenario doesn't play out. The realists, on the other hand, they manage to accept the brutal facts of their current circumstances and keep hope alive for something better. The realists have resolved the tension between acceptance and hope by running both of them in parallel. And that's what we've been practicing over the last eight or nine years. I've accepted the wheelchair. It's almost impossible not to. And we're sad sometimes for what we've lost. But I also accept that with the right kind of supports that not everyone has, you can, and lots of people do, live full and meaningful lives as wheelchair users. But as realists, we accept all of that, and we hope for another life, a life where we've created a cure through collaboration, a cure that we're actively working to release from university labs around the world and make available to those who can't access any of these interventions yet. I met Mark when he was just blind. He asked me to teach him to dance, and I did. One night after dance classes, I turned to say goodbye to him and to his gorgeous guide dog, Larry. I realized that in leaving, I'd turned off all the lights in the apartment, and I was leaving them in the dark. I burst into unexpected tears and tried to hide them, but Mark knew. And he hugged me and said, ah, poor Simon, you're back in 1998 when I went blind. Don't worry, it turns out okay in the end. Acceptance is knowing that grief is a raging river and you have to get into it. Because when you do, it takes you to the next place. It eventually takes you to open land somewhere where it will turn out okay in the end. And it truly has been a love story, an abundant, deeply satisfying kind of love for our fellow human beings and the act of creation. Science is love. Everyone we've met in this field just wants to get their work from the bench and into people's lives. And it's our job to help them to do that. Because what will matter in the end is when we, 
and everyone with us in this act of creation are able to say, we did it, and then we dance. Thank you. Absolutely daunting to be required to interview two people who speak in poetry. <laughs> uh, Mark, and uh, uh, you quote um, Admiral Stockdale, you know, if you have a, a why to live, you can put up with almost any how, but and you, you were quoting Nietzsche to me earlier, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And, uh, I mean, I could have a book full of quotes from Nietzsche. <laughs> from, not from just from tonight, but from uh, you know, our previous conversations. So it's, um, it's a real privilege to, to meet both of you. And, uh, it's, yeah. 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 Anyway. it's been waiting uh, nearly 10 years. I was saying to Ian uh, before we started that one of the first books I read that I actually understood about neuroplasticity is an amazing book called The Brain That Changes Itself. And it's written by an American psychotherapist, I think, yeah. and a New York Times bestseller book. And in the middle of it, he talks about this incredible professor uh, whose work on brain science is groundbreaking. And when I saw that Ian was based in Trinity, it was like this lifeline being thrown over to us at the in the hospital in England, I thought, oh, this is happening in Ireland. We'll have at least one person who understands what we're, what we're trying to, to figure out. So it's amazing. Thank you for making this happen. I'm, I'm a bit starstruck. <laughs> um, so one of the quotes is from you, Simone. And it was from a previous interview or maybe from the TED talk, you said, science is love. Tell us about that. Well, it sort of comes from two places. Uh, one from uh, an incredible mentor of mine. She's a psychotherapist, but really a storyteller. Um, and she's, you know, saved, saved my... Uh, saved my sanity from many times from, from where grief can sometimes go, you know, has, has helped me manage that. And I was explaining to her as we were on this sort of tour of science labs around the world in the UK and the US and then here, um, how different it was to how doctors were. You know, doctors give you the list of symptoms and things that you can't have and uh, when you try and talk about possibilities they're very restricted and then we would walk into these labs and it was like 
the second date with someone that the first date had gone really well <laughs> on. There was just this instant feeling of love and um, it was like they knew us. And of course, and, and she said to me when I was trying to make sense of this and describe it, she said, of course, scientists are in the act of creation. And I realized that some of these people had been working for 30 years for Mar, like 30 years before he'd even been injured. Mm. They, were, they were fantasizing about somebody who was paralyzed, that they, whose life they could make better. Yeah. So of course they loved us when, when we walked in. They knew who we were. Yeah. They'd, they'd, there was this family feeling, this affinity between um, everybody who's, who's in this situation or I think has gone through an injury, catastrophic injury like this, and then the people who are trying to, to make it better. Um, and then just to prove the point, I have this beautiful photo of a young um, science PhD on a treadmill behind Mark, and he was wearing a T-shirt that had a bubbling um, uh, beaker on it, and it said, science is love across the front. And I went, well, there you go. It's, uh, <laughs> So the short answer is from a t-shirt. The long answer really is that this is what, yeah. this is, this is, I mean, this is like when we met Chuck and Nancy, it really was like second parents, a scientist in Miami, Mark was speaking at a hospital and she came to see him speak and we spent some time, time in her lab and she sat beside me and held my hand the whole way through his yeah. talk. Yeah. And um, so we wanted to try and communicate that. Yeah. Well, on behalf of uh, scientists throughout <laughs> the world, thank you so much for that beautiful uh, observation. Because the two of you are, you know, it's remarkable. You might be getting 15 million investment for this company this week. Congratulations. You're, well, you, you see, this, this is yeah. the direct contrast yeah. of, uh, it's also it's important to have two perspectives, isn't it? Yeah. But, but, you know, the, I got exactly the same feeling from the, from the scientist and emerging from from their uh, the thoughts in their bra brains and the research that they that they do. But of course, as that starts to develop and get to the groundbreaking findings that that some of which we've spoken about and some of the people that we see with things that are ready to get out into the world, the process the system of getting great breakthroughs out into the world. Called the valley of death. The valley right. of death, Exactly, Wonderful. it's horrific. <laughs> and yeah. all sorts of things happen. Uh, the scientists maybe fall out with each other. The, f the, the two professors who have come up with this idea for 30 or 40 or 50 years form a company and struggle in the valley of death because we expect scientists not only to come up with incredible breakthroughs, but then somehow to be as hard-nosed as, as the, as the hardest hedge fund guy on Wall Street. And like, you wouldn't expect the Wall Street guy to come up with a breakthrough in neuroscience. So it's very, very difficult. And, and that's why this, this kind of, uh, you know, what Accenture are doing, doing and this is not, this is literally not, uh, you know, thank the sponsor's job here. But, um, <laughs> but you know, what's going on, not in Accenture's main business, but in fact in the, mm. in the team that, that Claire is, is leading and what's going on here with Jane. The, uh, the cross, the arts, economics, investment, science, you know, we've got to get together, we've got to talk more, and we've got, maybe the scientists have got to spread the love more. <laughs> you know, maybe that's what it is. But there is a, t you know, it starts with love and then 
slips into the valley of death and yes. becomes yeah. disastrous. <laughs> so the 15, 15 million is going to be a big, big win. And it means that we'll be cracking this out of the privileged few who have the ability. You know, we need the exploration. But the question is, how do you, how do you get that across the valley of death and make it available mm. in, the in the clinic? So that's kind of where and we are. And you, you love comes and you said it has been a love story, profoundly human in this act of creation. You're both involved in an act of creation, of group creation, of trying to create something that doesn't yet exist, uh, a cure for paralysis. And, and it's a risky, it's a risky act. And, and you know, you this profound um, uh, insight you have about that balance between hope and you talk about the disappointments you've had along the way, mm. often together, but that combination of hoping and yet acceptance, that surely is, is a, a lesson way beyond paralysis. Is, is, is it not something that is more applicable to most people on some time in their lives? Well, I, I, I think I've kind of changed and evolved over time because I come from a sports background, which is predominantly logical. <laughs> like if you're not training hard enough, you get dropped and you should expect to be dropped. And your teammate should expect to be dropped if he's not training hard enough or she's not training hard enough. You know, it's, it's black and white, logical, neocortex. Um, and it's taken me quite a long time, and in fact, um, it's taken me to read a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, who was the former lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. Um, and I spent some time with him in Boston earlier in the year. And I discovered that our, my approach in particular, not Simon's approach, because she's much better at the emotional side of things, but I just assumed the scientists, the technologists, the investors, the foundation people, and I thought that this was a logical exercise. So in, in meetings and board meetings, I, I, you know, I decided, let's just scrap what, what you've been doing for the last 10 years because it hasn't worked. Let's, you know, I, I thought, it just let's get on with it, logic, logic, logic. Now Chris Voss says that in a hostage negotiation, negotiation there is nothing logical about it. There's nothing logical about it. In fact, in a hostage negotiation, uh, you're always talking to the amygdala first. The emotional part of the brain is hypothalamus, is that the, the amygdala, that whole part of the brain, Risky in fact. Risky getting uh, into the brain structure. But the point, the point, well, this, uh, I mean, I'm happy, I'm happy yeah. to yeah, be told that I'm wrong. But the idea, the reason it's called never split the difference is the hostage, you can't say, look, you've got four hostages here. Hostage taker, you just take, you just take, or shoot two of them there and, and give me the other two. You cannot split the difference. The hostage negotiator must get 100% of what he or she needs, all hostages out, and the hostage taker must get 100% of what they need, which is very often not to kill the hostage, to get the ransom, um, or anything like that. It's much more often about staying alive or being recognized for the colonial trampling that's been going on for hundreds of years, all emotional. 
So, so in fact, where I have moved to now is that we're now in a position that to bring people together to solve complex problems is not done at the logical level, because nobody, if you happen to be a human being, uh, is logical. It's all emotional. The scientists want to do it because it's their life's work. The technologists want to do it because they love technology and they love to pour money to tinker with it. The investors want, want some money back, fine, no problem. The foundations need to be seen to get in the big win because they've got a big stake in it. The, the, the white knight parents of those children, they need to do it for their daughters. They need to fix their daughters. Everyone has an emotional stake in it and that's, I've only come to that in the last six months. Um, it can't, it can't, it can't be logical first. It must be emotional first. And both of you burrowed straight into my amygdala and everyone <laughs> else's amygdala. You, you, have, you, have, you have mastered that art. See, it was the amygdala. <laughs> oh, yes, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I was making you feel nervous. <laughs> but, you know, there was a famous study about 30 years ago where they assessed they compared lottery winners, I think it was in Michigan, lottery winners and people who had become paralyzed in accidents, and they assessed them all a year later. And when it came to this, the, the small things of life, the happiness of life, there was no difference between the lottery, lottery winners and people with paralysis. Now, it's very easy as a non-paralyzed person, a non-blind person, to be a Pollyanna, to be mouthing, mm. you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Look at Mark Pollock. Mm, 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 mm. But you do strike me both, in spite of the grief, in spite of the disappointments, in spite of the sadnesses, as happy people with a real strong why. Am I wrong or am I right? No, I, it's both. It's yeah. both, like it's, it's, yeah. it's this problem, and it's largely a, a problem of narrative, and I think we maybe feed into it sometimes, and I really don't want to do that. I feel uncomfortable doing that. Um, it is both those things. We have days where we don't notice, you know, where everything goes smoothly, and Mark gets up and gets into the shower and gets to training and gets to work and isn't sick, and we're working on something that's really exciting, and it's all that and it is really exciting um, I think once when we were in UCLA we were walking um, by Santa Monica with with Simon who trains with Mark here in Trinity and Ross was making a documentary and That's I said, hard. I said I, yeah Santa Monica Pier, in Santa Monica Pier uh, in a break from the lab and I said joking Jesus lads what will we do if we actually cure this like what will we do next yeah. do you know like yeah. how what would that life be like if yeah. Mark sort of walked out of here yeah. Those moments are so joyous and yeah. beautiful and you have to just fully inhabit them because then the next day, it's really, I mean, I unexpectedly started to cry while we were talking. I, did, was, I produced the picture of Mark and his guide dog and I, there's something so gothically tragic about that that I long for a day where he was just blind, mm. you know? And that was hard, mm. like that was sad at the time. Yeah. Um, so there's something really difficult to wrap your head around about that. And, and all, all I can say is that you have to mourn that. And that is ongoing. I think that's mm. on a daily basis. There are days where you're sad. Mark gets kidney infections, which affect you emotionally. Um, 
it's like your worst One hangover night. times 10. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it's coming out the other side, but it's really, mm. like psychologically, it can be really dark. It brings you really down. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, that's how I know mm. before he even has a fever or anything, he'll be uncharacteristically cranky. Grumpy. And grumpy, and I'll say, Mark, you're a bit grumpy. You're being a bit short with me today. No, not. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Like, no, stop, stop telling me I'm sick. I'm not sick. Mm. And then I'm, oh, yeah, that's but, uh, but I think, I think, <laughs> You know, I think the the the, qu the question is it's one that I that I think think of a lot. And to go back to the real the realist bit, you see, I I sometimes when I'm doing a, a talk for companies and stuff in the questions and answers, I'm sometimes horrifically accused of being an optimist, right? <laughs> Which means that my my story of what a realist is is not uh, has not been communicated well enough by me, but. <laughs> You know, to, to really be a realist, you, you have to look at all of the facts. So I can't see and I can't walk, but I can use my arms. You know, you know I, I used to be in college here, so I have education. You know, I should have been in this in first year in this lecture theater on a Thursday and Friday morning for management <laughs> with Emma Donnelly Cox, which I never went to. Um, you know, but at least I had the opportunity. Oh, anyway, the, 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 point, the point I'm making is that if you look at the package of facts that I have, living at this time in history, in this place, with the network of people I have around me, I'm a particularly poor example of uh, someone who's struggling with this injury because there are guys that I shared a word with whose um, parents couldn't, couldn't read or write, like literally didn't could not understand anything the doctors were giving them, couldn't go onto the internet and read up about the injury, didn't know um, what the spinal cord was all about, like just didn't know the, ana the anatomy or the, neuro or, or the neurology at all. And to, to be, to, if I was sort of crying into my pint, um, saying poor wee me with everything that we've got going for us, you know, I think it would be, I think we'd be, we, we would be missing the point, but that comes from the release that you get, the, the liberation that comes with being a true realist is to acknowledge the tough stuff and all of the amazing stuff that goes on, because on balance, for me, it's pretty good. And, and be allowed to have the days where you're not Pollyanna and you complain about it. Like often our friends will say, you know, they're having a hard time in work or something else happens and they'll say, well, you know, I can't complain in front of you. And Mark always very generously says, everybody's stuff is their stuff, you know, everything. I'm hardening the stance a little bit on that. <laughs> <laughs> he, d he did say to me once when I was complaining a lot about uh, work, he said, I think I can listen to you whinge about this maybe three more times. And then <laughs> after that, you either have to leave that job or stop telling me about it. Yeah. I was like, Fair point, actually, you mm. know. She left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she left. I did. I did. Yeah, it was the best thing ever. I'm, I'm going to hand over to some questions in a moment. But I, I, want, I want to finish off by, you know, quoting, I think it's you, Simone, um, but it's, it's both of you, and it, it's a beautiful fundamental quote. That, and you said it in, in your presentation. Acceptance is knowing that grief is a raging river and that you have to get into it. Because when you do, it carries you to the next place, eventually takes you to open land, 
somewhere where it will turn out okay in the end. Is that your viewers, both of you? Does that capture who you are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, do you? Yeah, like it, it is, it's kind of the point about Simon uh, um, writes and speaks much more lyrically than, than me. She clearly wrote that, but uh, <laughs> but 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 the truth, it, it is exactly that because you know it, you hit the ground, you're in intensive care. Twelve weeks or not, you know you're paralysed. That's it. It's over. Full stop. Now the only way. The only way to put a, a new a new life in place is to accept it, jump in, and get swept swept along in the river. And you do eventually, you, as you say with that study, you do eventually find a new identity, a new place, a new way of being. Um, but it, it, it really does start with that foundation of acceptance. And, and I think being sad. Um, keeps you from becoming depressed, you know? And I think someone, uh, uh, Sikha, hi, that we work with asked me, uh, um, do you think how we talk about mental health can be damaging in some way? So in a really good way, we now talk about mental health and we talk about depression, we talk about suicidal ideation, but we seem to have lost the words for talking about just the human condition. Some days, without all of this, you wake up and you're profoundly sad. Yeah. It's just a crappy day and you lose your keys and you arrive as I did with no raincoat or umbrella and you're soaking wet and then your makeup pours all over your top and then you're thinking, really, <laughs> what is wrong with me? Why didn't I just bring an umbrella? It's, you know, and it's, and it's awful. Or you're sad, like you're, you're profoundly sad yeah. from nothing that you can identify. And then there are days where you are just on top of the world and everything's absolutely wonderful. And I think, think that that is human, but then there's all these pressures that come from narratives like, I'm going to fight cancer. You know, like there's a, there's a um, Tommy Tiernan, we did an interview with him and he said a lovely thing. He said, there's a type of optimism that's kind of oppressive because it doesn't allow for any, for any darkness. Yeah. And it's, it's, this, it's this constant, the acceptance and hope on this weighing scales and the yeah. take the joy with like both hands when you can and when you're sad, um, cry. And Mark cried um, every day in the hospital. I remember, never forget the big line yeah, of, cry. of rowers that came in <laughs> and he just held hands with all these six foot five big early men and gave them um, the permission to cry also. And came out of uh, came out of it the other side. Eight months later, um, it felt like he was ahead. Of, even of me, you say I deal with the emotional stuff, but he was ahead of me in the grieving. I had lots to do. Yeah. I was doing the like brain stuff yeah. and the thinking and the sorting, and I'd sort of banned crying. And actually, I did when I went back to work. I had this weird physical reaction. I kept. I'd be at my computer and I kept feeling like I was going to the top of a roller coaster and then down the other side and sometimes I'd burst out laughing and I'd think, oh, I'm actually losing my mind. This is, <laughs> this is kind of mad. Or I'd be laughing at something someone said to me and the next thing I'd be in tears. I'd say, what's going on? 
And I said it to a friend of mine who's a doctor, kind of making a joke of it, and she said, that's adrenaline and cortisol. Your body is just trying to get all this out. And she said, do you cry much? And I said, oh, no, I banned crying uh, mm. six months ago because there's been enough tears and life has to start again. And she just went, oh. You have to do it. You have. It's so awful. I, Can I, you I not think, fix I think, that? Uh, <laughs> I, th I, th oh. I think it's a, it's a, a fair point. Like, we have really concentrated on the on the acceptance bit, but there is, there is a preamble to the to the acceptance. I think. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's on death and dying, uh, five stages of grief model: the denial, anger, blame. Anger and blame. God and seeking. It'd be good. It'd be good to, to, to learn it. But look, I should know it. Well, well, yeah. God seeking, first of all, you deny that it's going on at all. There's yeah. definitely that. There's some kind of anger, frustration, yeah. blame going on. There's some kind depression, of mir miracle depression, seeking. Depression, yeah. You know, yeah. the turning to, turning to yeah. all sorts of gods. The self pity, <coughs> and then the acceptance, yeah. and they happen yeah. together and in sequence, and come back and, and yeah. disappear all the time. But at some point. Um, there's an acknowledgement that this is a new start point. Mm.